welcome to This Girl Can, where we chat to wonderful women doing fabulous things in pharma. I'm Liv Nixon, and today I'm talking to Hensley Evans, Partner and Practice Area Lead at ZS Associates. Starting her consulting career with a decade at PricewaterhouseCoopers, Hensley has also spent over 12 years in healthcare marketing, working in organisations such as Saatchi and Saatchi. She's been a partner at ZS now for 10 years, offering strategic direction and insight to many of the world's top healthcare, pharmaceutical and biotech companies. Last year, Hensley took on the additional task of co-authoring a book called Reinventing Patient Centricity, Bringing Patient-Led Business Models to Life. The book explores opportunities for pharma to adopt true patient-led business models, taking readers through the patient experience, identifying tactical examples for pharma around where, when and how to bring in the patient and the business benefits of doing so. On top of her passion and knowledge in patient centricity, Hensley is a vocal DEI advocate. And as if that wasn't enough, she sits on the board of an organisation called AMREF Health Africa, a non-profit organisation working with women and children's health programmes in eastern and southern sub-Saharan Africa. Wow. So much to get into, and we've got under an hour to do it. So let's get going. Hi there, Hensley. Welcome to This Girl Cam. Hi, Olivia. Nice to see you, or hear you. Yeah, both as it stands. But yeah, likewise, it's lovely to see you. I know we've got loads to talk about, so we will get straight in. But before we do, I'd like you just to tell us a little bit about yourself and your personal and professional story to date, if you can, before we get into some of these other meaty topics we've got to discuss. Yeah, absolutely. So I thought I would start with kind of where I am now, and then I can work a little bit backwards to, to sort of how I got here. So I'm currently a partner, a principal at ZS Associates, which is a consultancy focusing in healthcare. And quite a lot of our work is in the pharmaceutical, medtech, and biotech space. But And I've been at ZS for 10 years. Prior to that, I was in the agency space doing work with large healthcare and pharmaceutical brands, helping them to launch direct-to-consumer, consumer education campaigns, as well as healthcare professional campaigns. And so I've been in the healthcare space for a long time. And the sort of patient aspect of healthcare is a real passion of mine. And I know you and I spoke about this before, but last year published with a co-author a book on patient centricity called Reinventing Patient Centricity, because I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to do a better job of delivering really good patient-centered care to patients. So that's a little bit about me. Fabulous. Thank you. So go on. So tell me about your book. And I suppose, first of all, tell me about what made you want to write the book in the first place, where that motivation came from. Right. So like many of my ideas, it came to me one morning while I was running and I was actually listening to the TED Talks podcast, which if, if your listeners aren't familiar with it, I highly recommend they, they publish excerpts of various TED Talks on different topics. And I remember thinking, well, it would be really cool. They were interviewing a woman who had written a book. And I remember thinking it would be really cool to take all of the research that we've done over the years that set us on different aspects of patient centricity, patient insights, strategy, engaging directly with patients, et cetera, and sort of find all of the threads that weave those different topics together um, and put it into a book. And so I got back from my run and I shot off an email to, I don't know, half a dozen of my colleagues and said, tell me if I'm crazy. I have this idea, but sometimes when I'm running, I have these ideas that 
may not be all that realistic, but I got a very enthusiastic reception from almost everyone that I wrote to saying, what a great idea and how can I help? So that was the genesis of the process to write the book. And in fact, many of those folks that I reached out to originally wound up being co-authors of chapters. And so I guess maybe they felt like because they encouraged me, they were somehow duty bound to help. (laughs) So what was the journey like writing the book then? Tell me, did you learn more as you were writing it? And how did you feel after it was written? For sure. I mean, there's the whole process associated with writing a book, which I really had zero knowledge of ahead of time. I thought it would be fairly simple, right? I thought you would take your good ideas, you would write them down on paper. Someone with a good editorial mind would help you make that writing better, and then you would publish it. But there's a lot more steps than that. One of the cool things about writing the book was it allowed us to collaborate with a number of other folks in the industry, patients, clients, people in pharma and other healthcare provider organizations, where we interviewed them, tried to incorporate their stories and their experiences into the book. And so that was a really cool part of it, right? That whole research aspect, right? While we had done a lot of primary research, doing that sort of interview and qualitative research as a way to integrate patient stories and case studies and examples into our book was was really cool. It also, of course, creates a lot of complications from a publication standpoint, because then you have to make sure that you get all of the right permissions in place to use those story people's experiences. But but I think one of the cool things that that we did do when we had a complete manuscript together was that we had several advisors review the manuscript, and a couple of those advisors were patients that we had worked with in the course of researching the book. And one of the things I wanted to avoid was actually writing a book about patient centricity and not having a patient perspective on the book itself. I mean, you laugh, but like we do so much, right? Like we yeah. we actually um, often create initiatives that are intended to help people cope with uh, some sort of medical condition. And we don't ask them what they want, or we don't run it by them before we go ahead and launch whatever our genius initiative idea is. And all from a place of great intent, right? But often it it misses the mark and we're surprised when it misses the mark. But if we didn't, if we didn't ask what people wanted or needed, it, it's not it shouldn't come as a big surprise that it might not have landed the way we wanted it to. Sure, yeah. No, I can believe it. One of the things I found really interesting that I wanted to pick your brains about is the concept of beyond the pill as opposed to with the pill. And that was one of the things I saw in, I think it was the Pharma Forum guide around the book, saying that's where pharma had been getting it wrong or is possibly still getting it wrong in terms of we're still focusing on beyond the pill when actually these patients, they were in oncology services, I believe, and they were wanting more services with the pill. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, again, right, best of intentions. I think a lot of organizations look at the patient journey and with something particularly like oncology, where it is a complicated and emotional journey that the patients go through as they experience symptoms, get a diagnosis that they were probably praying not to get, and then have to manage through a long and sometimes very unpleasant treatment pathway with uncertain end results. And they think, oh, I really want to help patients along the way of this journey, and I'm going to create some solutions or services that help them at different points. And that that's sort of broadly referred to as beyond the pill, right? Yeah. I've created some treatment. It may not be a pill. It may be an injection or an infusion or something else, but just broadly speaking. 
and I want to provide that medicine, right? That's going to help. But then I'm going to provide these other services that, that I think are going to help. And I think what more and more patients are telling us is that from a pharmaceutical manufacturer, what they're primarily interested in receiving is assistance around the pill, right? So maybe it's about how do I get access to this medicine? How do I ensure that I can afford it? How do I get started on this medicine? What should I expect from my treatment? How do I know if it's working? What might I do if I'm experiencing side effects? How do I know when I should call my doctor, et cetera, et cetera? And that if you can get that right first, getting the medicine, starting on the medicine, staying on the medicine, and then getting to the best possible outcome of that medicine, that's really the place where manufacturers have a right to engage with the patient and where patients are expecting who better than the person who makes this medication would know how to help me get access to it, et cetera. When you start going further away from that sort of treatment part of the care pathway, you have to think carefully about where pharma will be a welcome provider of information, right? And obviously a lot of organizations might want to help a patient at the diagnosis stage when they're thinking about their different treatment options. Well, maybe from a patient perspective, it's not terribly credible, right? Even if the manufacturer is being very agnostic about what the treatment options are, from a patient's perspective, they're like, well, I'm not certain I believe that this manufacturer of a specific medication is going to be a good and reliable source of information about all of my different treatment options. Are they really going to tell me everything about all of my options, right? And in that case, the patient will likely prefer an advocacy organization or a provider or a trusted pharmacist, right? Someone who is more independent to provide that information. That doesn't mean that pharma couldn't partner with one of those organizations to help provide that information to patients, but it may mean that, but I think it's very different in different therapeutic categories, right? So it, it may be different in psoriasis than it is in oncology, for example, but I think you have to really think about where it's appropriate for the manufacturer to engage directly with the patient with information and support and where it may be better and better received to partner with others in the sort of broader healthcare ecosystem. Yeah. Well, it's really fascinating. It's just that concept, I suppose, of that credibility piece for the pharmaceutical organization. And that's almost play to your strengths and work within that field. Right, right. Well, and credibility is a challenge for pharma all the way around, right? I think if you look at Gallup publishes a rating of consumer trust in organizations and pharma always ranks at the bottom of the list along with things like tobacco and oil and gas companies. Then you see companies like Coca-Cola that rank right up near the top and you think, well, really, practically speaking, pharmaceutical companies have done way more to help people and advance their health and life yeah. Life expectancies and some of the other companies that are near the top of the list. But that's, so true. That's another issue. So, on that note, then, Hensley, what was it that made you initially want to work within the healthcare industry? Was it something you always wanted to do? Because I know you did maths and economics, didn't you, at university? That's your background. Yeah. So I studied math and economics in undergrad, and I initially worked in consulting, just doing broad strategy consulting. When I got engaged in healthcare, one of the things that really interested me in healthcare was that it was a very multifaceted problem to solve, Mm -hmm. right? Is that I worked in the agency world, as I mentioned, and 
we had clients including Pizza Hut and M&Ms and Diet Coke. And these products are fun to market and, and easy to sell, right? Because you really just need to convince a person that they would like to buy a Diet Coke and then they can go into any number of places and purchase one. It's not complicated. It's not super expensive. There's no access limitations, right? So, you know, those marketing campaigns are very straightforward. It's Mm -hmm. really about demand generation. But when you move into the healthcare space, you obviously have the challenge of intermediaries, A, but I mean, not challenge, but the fact, the structural fact of intermediaries, right? There's a physician, there's a pharmacist, there are other people involved in the decision. But then there's also the question of finding the appropriate people to, to talk to, right? So people aren't always able to determine whether or not a specific medication might be an appropriate medication for them. Even if they know their diagnosis, if you take a fairly prevalent disease like diabetes, right, it's going to have to be a decision made with the patient and the physician together about what the yeah. appropriate diabetes treatment is for a particular patient, right? So the process of educating individuals about their choices and then helping them work their way through the steps they have to take to get to the best possible outcome is quite complex. And actually I found with that kind of maths and economics background, I found that complexity to be really intriguing. That You had to make all these things happen at the same time in order to get the best possible outcome for a person. So what is it then, that was obviously what led you into it and what fascinated you. What is it that's kept you in healthcare over the years? What is it that continues to engage you the most, do you think? Well, so one of the reasons that I was excited to move to Europe five years ago, so I was, when I joined ZS, I joined in New York and I had worked in the US healthcare space for a long time. And I was really intrigued by the opportunity to learn about different healthcare systems. And I'm fascinated by the fact that depending on where you live, and this is actually true even within individual countries, right? Within individual markets, depending on where you live, your experience of the same healthcare condition will be vastly different. And that has to do with your socioeconomic circumstances, the geographic access to care that you have based on where you live and based on who you're employed by, the skills and capabilities that are available within that geography, whether you'd have to travel, et cetera, even the treatments that are approved in specific markets and how you go about getting access to those treatments. In in some markets, you have to go first to your GP and get a referral and an approval to go to a specialist to seek care. In other markets, you can just self-refer and go directly to a specialist. In some markets, you can choose to self-pay if you want a different course of treatment than the course of treatment that might be covered by the nationalized healthcare organization and others, you don't have that choice. So it's really interesting to see the differences. And one of the things that that I am still intrigued by in, in healthcare is that our medical care is getting better and better. And yet the disparities in outcomes for patients between those that have good access to care, that that have the socioeconomic means to be able to take advantage of all of these medical advances, that disparity between the sort of haves and have-nots from a healthcare perspective is continuing to grow. 
And I think we saw it during COVID, right, when certain demographics suffered much more severe consequences of COVID than others. And initially, we weren't sure why. And so I would love to be able to use some of the work that I'm doing in healthcare to bring some of these incredible scientific advances that we're seeing in kind of medical research and science to a broader group of patients so that more people can get to the best outcome possible for them kind of given their situation. So I think there's so much to be done. Like healthcare in many markets is so broken. And so even though we have this great science and we have these great capabilities, many people don't get the benefit of that, Yeah, which I think is a shame. You went to Africa earlier this year, didn't you? Yes. Tell me about that. Yeah. So I've been on the board of an organization called AMREF Health Africa, which is an NGO headquartered in Nairobi, Kenya. AMREF works with women and children's health programs in Eastern and Southern Sub-Saharan Africa. So in, I don't know, 18, 20 countries. And every other year, I try to go to Africa to meet with some of the staff that are there on the ground working with programs, and then also visit some of the program sites. Because as a as an international board member, my, my primary role is to help fundraise. And it's much easier to raise money for things that you've seen and kind yeah. of experienced with your with your own self. So I was in Rwanda and in Ethiopia. So in Rwanda, we were at a major conference, the Africa Health Initiative Conference, and got to hear about a lot of different health initiatives that are being, in many cases, sponsored by many pharmaceutical manufacturers, as well as folks like the World Bank and USAID, EUAID, and then was able to go visit a number of projects, including in, in several different towns in Ethiopia. And I think one of the amazing things about going to countries like Ethiopia, or I've been to Tanzania, to Kenya, to South Africa to visit projects as well in the past, is that you really see how much difference some very basic healthcare can make in, in people's lives, just basic preventative health care, ba- basic access to, to care. And one of the things AMREF does focus on uh, particularly is maternal health and helping improve the prenatal care for women has such a long-term impact on really the economy, right? By, by helping women give birth to healthy babies and helping those babies stay healthy through just basic things like malaria prevention, HIV AIDS prevention, basic clean water education can do a tremendous amount to improve health overall. And I think what's interesting now is that we're starting to see in Africa the expansion of the prevalence of non-communicable diseases. As unfortunately, we export some of our lifestyle to to the rest of the world, right? You see increasing rates of diabetes, obesity, heart yeah. disease, et cetera. So starting to see the need for broader preventative care in those dimensions as well. How did you even get involved with AMRAF to start with? How did that come about? Yeah. Well, so I'll make a long story long, and then you can shorten it if you want later in in post-production, I guess. But about 15 years ago, I was part of an executive coaching program. And one of the interesting things that my coach suggested I do when we were talking about kind of career aspirations and what you wanted to accomplish in your career she said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a funny assignment and I just want you to do it. Don't think too much about it. I don't wish you any ill, ill will. 
She said, but I want you to go home tonight and write your obituary. Imagine that you've been very unfortunately struck by a bus or something on your way home from work. And someone who loves you very much, your mother, your husband, your best friend, whoever, is writing your obituary. What are all the nicest things that they would say about what you've accomplished in your life so far? So I dutifully went home and did this sort of slightly morbid exercise. And then I think I was meeting with her every two weeks. The next time I met with her, she said, okay, now we're going to do a slightly different version of the same exercise, which is imagine that you live to, I don't know, you're 95, but you've enjoyed great, good health all the way up in your final moments. You are, you've died surrounded by your family and friends, et cetera. Now rewrite your obituary, right? What would it say 50 years from now? And so I went and did that. And then the real exercise was comparing the two and saying, so what's different? Like, what do you see on that obituary when you're 95 versus the one that you write when you're 45? And one of the big things that, that I thought was missing, right, from my 45-year-old obituary was that I hadn't really done anything to give back to the kind of community around me. I was so busy focusing on my career and my young family and all of those things. And I said, I really do want to get more involved in some, some mechanisms where I can give back. And so I started volunteering for a local organization, a land trust that was very involved in building trails near, near my home. But then about six months later, there was this opportunity to sponsor organizations for some pro bono work for my agency. And one of my client friends at Pfizer was working with AMRAP and she suggested that AMRAP could use some help. So we brought them in over the weekend. We helped them develop a new sort of social media marketing plan to help expand their donor base in the U.S. And after that weekend, they asked if I would be part of their communications team, which I joined for about a year and a half. And at that time, they asked me to join the board. So it, it really was partly chance, right, that, that my friend Christine was involved and suggested this pro bono opportunity, but also had sort of identified getting more involved with nonprofit organizations as something that I really wanted to put into my life. And I think what's interesting is a lot of people have actually asked me about getting involved in nonprofit boards and how to go about it. And it's almost like the minute you decide that it's something that you want to do and start looking into nonprofit organizations, they all need help, yeah. right? So I happen to really enjoy working with MREF because it's sort of the intersection of a lot of things that are important to me, right? Healthcare. When I was in my undergrad, I wrote an honors thesis on uh, the African economy in Kenya. And so I had been to Kenya twice as a young child and really loved it there. And so when I had an opportunity to pick a country to focus on with my honors thesis. I picked Kenya. There's great data, which is another reason why I picked it. But at any rate, so I felt like it, it combined in women and children. Of course, I am a woman. I have a daughter. So the idea of kind of combining all these different things in an organization that I could help was really attractive to me. Yeah, that is that exercise, the obituary exercise is a fantastic idea, isn't it? What a great thing to do. I love that. One of my questions for you, which was actually going to come later, but it will probably tie in with something like that, is around advice that you'd give to women in particular wanting to propel their career. And I think you've really highlighted some important moments of reflection that need to take place before you can make such decisions. Yeah. I mean, I think there are a couple of pieces of advice I would give to people who are kind of mid-career, right? As opposed to just getting started. 
One that's quite interesting. So in, in my organizations at us, we're a privately held company and we're a partnership. And so for a lot of people, they sort of set their sights on becoming a partner and that's their career goal, right? And so they're working towards that for the first 10, 12 years of their career. But the interesting thing is it's really only the first 10 or 12 or maybe 15 years of your career and then suddenly you're partner, right? Yeah. And you've still got 20 years of your career ahead of you. Um, <laughs> and so I, I do think that, but I had the same sort of experience before I joined ZS. I had worked in consulting for a long time. And probably when I was in my late thirties, I found myself president of this agency that I was working for at the time called Hart Hanks. And I thought, well, here I am, I'm 35. I'm the president of this agency. Well, now what, right? Like mm -hmm. now what's the next step? And I think Thinking about how you want to see your career evolution beyond just kind of getting to a certain level, right? What are the things that really interest you? What are the things you want to learn how to do? Do you love, do you love the operational aspect of running a business or do you hate that and really just want to do the visionary strategy work? Do you love the people, leadership part, mentoring and coaching others, or would you rather roll up your sleeves and do the work, right? I, I think there are some real choices that you can make that, that help sort of determine like which direction you want to go. And I think it's often easy to be like, oh, I want that job because it's kind of the next ladder up on the rung. But then you get there and you find out, oh, you know what? Being the president of a P&L means that I have to do all sorts of things around forecasting and budgeting and headcount planning. And well, I can do those things, but they're not my favorite thing to do, right? I'd yeah. much rather be working directly with organizations trying to solve their thorny strategic problems. I mean, you could you can tell I'm maybe talking from my own perspective, right? Yeah. So so I think it's thinking about what are the things that bring you joy, right? What are the moments in your in your day-to-day -day work life that you really love to do versus the things that you do because you have to do them. Yeah. And like try to index towards things that give you more opportunities to do those things that bring you joy. Because I think there's there's an upward path regardless of which direction you choose, right? It's just gonna look it's gonna look a little different. Yeah. And so I loved that obituary exercise because it got me thinking also about the things I love to do. And that's now opened up for me roles on for-profit boards, which is great opportunity for me to develop more a broader professional network, develop some higher level skills around board board membership and what it means to be a good board member and a contributing board member. So yeah, so it led to a lot of things that I wasn't anticipating when I originally yeah. said, hey, I want to get involved in some nonprofit work. Yeah. No, that's really helpful. So I know you mentioned your daughter earlier. I know, again, from our initial chat that um, a passionate advocate for well, DEI in general, I wanted to chat to you more about gender equality or gender equity, we should talk about really, and where you think we are with that and perhaps some of your personal observations. Yeah, I mean, I think we are making progress all the time. I find that when I tell stories about my early career and some of the experiences I had when I was just out of uni, I went to a large consulting firm in the late 1980s, and they still had a dress code for women that prohibited women from wearing pants 
to, to the office because that was not considered appropriate professional attire. We had to wear a skirt, suit, or a dress. And I mean, it was just given to you with your orientation, right? I try to imagine what would happen if we, if we said that now, right? <laughs> so, so the changes in the sort of professional workplace with regard to gender, it, they're enormous. And I mean, even when I joined ZS 10 years ago, I was asked to lead the Women's Leadership Initiative. And early on, we decided we wanted to set a target for women's representation within the organization. And we rolled out a North Star and a strategic approach to women at ZS that we at that time had called 50-50 because we thought, hey, women should be represented equally at every level of the organization. And we thought that was quite progressive and, and kind of a bold vision. But then, of course, in the past few years, we've, we've walked away from 50-50 because it's not terribly inclusive of individuals that don't identify as either male or female. So thinking about how even in the 10 years that I've been at ZS, we've really evolved our thinking about gender and equity and what that means, right? What it means to be inclusive and representative. It's funny because my daughter um, just started school at a new school. She is trying boarding school this year for the first time and enjoying it. But she's quite a good football player and she, well, I don't know if you're, if all your listeners are in Europe, if they're in the U.S., that means soccer. Yeah. (laughs) She's quite a good football player. And because the practice times didn't sync up very well with her schedule, she was invited to practice with the boys team at her school. And I think it was after like the second practice that she did with the under 16 boys she called me up and she said, well, mom, I'm sorry to report that sexism is alive and well. And I said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. What makes you say that? I mean, I'm not surprised to hear that, but what makes you say that? She said, well, none of the boys want to pass the ball to me and be the one that passed to me if I make a goal. And, um, and the coach who was trying to be inclusive when he wanted to round us up and bring us in, he said, okay, come on, guys and girl and it made me feel really called out and she's like it's just not it's still pretty apparent that the boys don't want me playing on their team and and I said well no I said in some ways we've made a lot of progress because you are playing on the boys team right they have included you on the other hand it doesn't feel welcoming and you don't feel like you belong right which is core to any kind of equity and I said I'm not super surprised about that, but I am sorry to hear that. I'm glad the coach is trying to make you feel included, but you know, maybe he needs to think of a different way to do it. But at any rate, I find it interesting that she said that because I do hear from some of the younger women that that, that join our organization that they don't see it as a problem in their lives. Right? Mm-hmm. They don't see gender discrimination as a real issue. And I'm like, well, great if you've never experienced it. I don't take that to indicate that it doesn't exist that the gender bias doesn't still exist in our societies, but, uh, but I do think we're making, I do think we're making some progress slow, slow as it may, as it may be. Yeah. Yeah. I think you've hit the nail on the head really there. Everyone experiences it differently, don't they? I suppose, but yeah, there's definitely a way to go. What key changes do you think that the healthcare industry need to make over the next five years? Um, it, oh, it doesn't have to be five years, just over the coming years. So what do they need to make and what's going to make them change too? So the need to make, one of the things that we've been talking to folks about for the past year and a half or two is the idea of a real pivot in business model from a product-centered 
uh, mindset and economic driver, right? That says the way I measure success in my organization is based on share or on volume of sales, number of prescriptions, right? It's very product focused. And there's been a bit of a shift to a more customer focused mindset, right? Like the perception, what's the positive perception? I think we need to move to a patient outcome focused mindset and business model, because I think as slow as it has been, we are gradually seeing movement towards value-based healthcare and payers, whether they be national governments or individual insurance companies, depending on the market, payers are starting to try to put in place contracts that basically incent based on outcomes, not based on volume of processes or volume of prescriptions written, et cetera. And the minute that reaches a tipping point and more and more of the reimbursement in the healthcare system is based on outcomes as opposed to based on volume, it's going to become critical for organizations to know what levers they pull to drive better outcomes, right? And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of around the pill or beyond the pill, right? So if I knew that certain interventions in addition to my molecule are going to result in a better outcome for a patient with fibromyalgia, right? Maybe one of those interventions is setting them up with weekly physical therapy. It has nothing to do with the pill, right? It's a complementary therapy. But maybe that's going to get them the best possible outcome in combination with medication. If I knew that, then I would figure out a way to encourage patients who are taking my medicine to also do that complementary therapy, because then I would get reimbursed at a higher rate from payers, because patients that were on my therapy would be also doing this complementary therapy, and they would get to a better outcome. But I think most organizations now, while they are doing lots of things around and beyond the pill, if you ask them how those activities are impacting patient outcomes, they won't be able to tell you. They might be able to tell you how those activities are impacting their volume of sales, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Well, we know that this is promotionally sensitive. And if we talk to doctors more about X, we get more scripts. Does that get them a better outcome for their patients, though? Well, we don't know, right? That's not the... It's not the that's not the end point that they're looking at. So I think it's going to be critical for organizations to, even if they don't change their business model right off the bat, to start measuring the patient outcome impact of their activities, right? So that they will know. And honestly, if you knew that doing thing A and thing B both resulted in the same ROI and the same financial return to your company, but you knew that thing B was better for patient outcomes than thing A, you would do thing B. Yeah. Right? There's no reason you wouldn't. And maybe if you knew that thing B was a tiny bit less profitable, but a lot better for patients, you might still do thing B, right? If you're seeing that the that the overwhelming trend is towards value-based medicine. So I think step one is to is to know. And so I think that's something that that organizations are really going to have to do. Right yeah. now it's kind of a nice option, right? Some are starting to measure that because they're because they see the writing on the wall and they think it'll be good to know. But I think eventually organizations are going to have to do that. Interesting. I think the other thing that's super interesting, and this is partly because I went to the TED conference in Vancouver earlier this year in April. 
so much conversation about artificial intelligence and everybody's obsessed with chat GPT, writing new Drake songs or making art that looks like it was painted by Michelangelo, but has your dog in it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I think the impact it's going to have on healthcare is going to be tremendous. One, one, of, the, one of the things that, that they were talking about at the TED conference was the concept of AI assistance that might help students, for example, study. That if you had a, an AI study tutor, it could really tailor lessons to the abilities and needs of a particular person. But imagine navigating this complicated healthcare system, for example, go back to the oncology patient, right? It's difficult, it's emotional, it's hard to kind of figure out who's saying what, when. I think the likelihood that in the next five years, we'll have some kind of AI-assisted healthcare support is very high, right? Because it will be a cost-effective and scalable way to provide support that's tailored to individuals that provides them with. Now, will that need to be vetted and supported by physicians? And yes, definitely across the board. But I think that's really going to change the game. And organizations are going to have to think about how is the sort of acceleration of digital and technology, including AI, going to change what my role should be? How can I help make sure that those technologies are serving my customers and my patients well in the future, right? So I think there's some real mental shifts that organizations are going to have to make because of those external drivers. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. And we haven't got enough time to get into that in as much detail as I'd like to. I'm fascinated by the whole topic as well myself, but it's a, it's a meaty one, isn't it? But yeah, absolutely. It will be an interesting few years, I think. Oh, I agree. Right. I cannot let you go without asking you the same question that I ask everybody. So have you seen the movie Sliding Doors? No. No. Okay. So it's a really old one, Gwyneth Paltrow. And essentially what it boils down to is one day in her life, she was off going to get on the train to go to work and she missed the train and she ended up going back home and she caught her husband cheating on her when she went back home. And the film then plays out what would have happened if she'd have just got on the train and ended up staying with her husband versus what actually happened was when she caught him and the fallout from that. And that was her real pivotal moment. The door, the sliding door on the train was her pivotal moment. So so the question I always like to get into is whether you have any moments in your life that you would consider your sliding doors moment or really pivotal point that made you, that perhaps sent you in this direction and you wonder if you'd have gone in a different one. Gosh, if I, when I picture life, right, I picture sort of branches of a tree, right? That that every every big life choice you make sends you one direction or another. I think there's been a couple of pivotal moments for me. I mean, one was having my daughter. I had Kaya when I was 41 years old, and we had decided we wanted to have a child kind of late in the game. And, and she really changed my outlook on many things, including kind of how I wanted to model what being a working woman and mom looked like. And not always easy, right? I may have told you this story before, but when she was about three years old, I was doing a lot of travel for work that year. And I was home and I said, what do you want to be for Halloween this year, Kaya? And 
she said, I want to be an airplane. And I said, you want to be an airplane? Why, why do you want to be an airplane? And she says, well, that way, when you go away, I'll be able to fly with you. Oh. And I'm like, oh, gosh, knife to the heart, right? But at the same time, I thought, I don't, I don't want to play into, I used to get questions from people that say like, oh, I don't know how you travel so much for work when you have a young daughter. Don't you miss her? Well, of course I miss her, right? But I think, do you ask that question to Stanley, who's sitting next to you in the cubicle, who also travels a lot? I don't think you do. Like Stanley has a young kid too, but nobody worries about poor Stanley missing his daughter or vice versa. And so I thought what I need to do is figure out a way to be wholly present for her when I am home and spend a lot of time with her when I can and emphasize to her that mommy loves her job, right? And that I really, but it has really had the effect of making me make sure that I like what I'm doing, right? Because I am making trade-offs, right? And if I don't enjoy what I'm doing for work, then I shouldn't be doing that instead of spending time with my family. So, so that I think her, her being part of my life and my world, like has really, has really had a mindset shift. And then I think moving to Europe was another huge decision for us. We, we came here five years ago, planning to stay for two or three. And I think we're, well, I know we're now hoping to be granted permanent residency in in Switzerland. So we'll see how that goes. Fingers crossed. But, uh, but I think that's a big, that's a big life shift too, just in terms of what, uh, what the what the possibilities look like for the future. Yeah. So those are a couple. Yeah. Sliding door moments. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to have to let you go, aren't I? I knew I was going to run out of time with you. (laughs) I really appreciate you working to fit this into my schedule. Oh, it's such a pleasure speaking to you. It's such a pleasure. So thank you for taking the time. And I might have to get you on for a second show at some point because there are so many more things that we could delve into. But um, (laughs) we will do that. Sure. And that is it for another episode. Thank you so much for listening. As ever, I'm off for the school holidays. So you can listen out for the next episode on Thursday, the 15th of June. Don't forget, you can now also join This Girl Cam as a member, where you'll get invited to join recording sessions, regular mentions on the show, and discounted or free tickets to some live events. To find out more, head to patreon.com forward slash thisgirlcam. You can go to thisgirlcam.com to see this interview in print and subscribe for regular updates on each new episode. You will also find out who my guest will be on the 15th of June. You can follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook, all under this girl cam. Thanks again, everyone. Bye for now.